We do appreciate the presence of uh, everyone this morning. We do have some visiting with us today. We're glad that you're here. I have to say that uh, when Andy uh, said we're going to sing this song and then uh, Brother Hutto will bring the lesson to us, it took me a long time to get used to that, Brother Hutto, people calling me that. It was so, in my mind, associated with my dad, just took me a long time to get used to that. And we might have some here who kind of think the same way when they hear that. But uh, appreciate everybody being with us today and appreciate the, those who have led us in worship this morning. Our, Brother, Brother Andy and Brother Jeff as he led the prayer, Brother Bill as he led our comments at the Lord's Supper, and uh, just so well done today. We appreciate it very, very much. Turn in your Bibles to the 50th Psalm this morning, the 50th Psalm. And while you're turning over there, I'll recall an episode in uh, my earlier life, not when I was 12 years old like I talked about last week, maybe a little bit after that, so when I was in school, I, I took a class that was pretty difficult, pretty hard class, pretty difficult class. I wanted to do well, which meant you got to pay attention in class. You know, that's uh, a key to doing well. Pay attention, listen to what the teacher is telling you. Uh, take good notes, take good notes. Keep up with the class and what's going on. Don't, don't fall behind and have to kind of try to catch up. So I was trying to do all of those things. Uh, paying attention in class, I was interested in the subject, so that wasn't especially difficult. Take good notes, and then uh, try to keep up. And, and one day, of course, the teacher says, now, you're going to write your test next week. That's the way he would say it. You're going to not take the test, but write the test. All the questions were kind of discussion questions, and so uh, we would uh, take the test in that way. And so I uh, started, started getting ready. During the course of the class, uh, the teacher would talk about the material, go over the material, and, and every now and then, he would kind of begin to wander. And so he would say, oh yeah, that point reminds me of this. And then he would kind of meander over here into this discussion and talk about that for a while. And so I'd listen, I'd think, man, that's really, that's interesting. Then, then he'd get back to the material and he would talk about that. And then, and, then, and then he might meander over here for a little while. It's not completely unrelated to the subject, but but just not, didn't appear to be right on the main, uh, the main subject anyway. So when the, the time of the test came, uh, it was one of those tests, you have five questions, answer four. And so the student could eliminate one, whichever one he chose. And so I'll read the first question, and I think, I, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I remember him talking about that, but that was in one of those meanderings, and I'm not quite sure I remember what he said about that. I'm going to think about that question and go to the next one, and maybe that first one will be the one I eliminate. Well, I read the second question, I thought, I don't know that one either. That's from one of those meanderings as well. <laughs> and I just, I remember him talking about that, but... I don't really remember what he said. I'm, I'm going to have to think about that one as well. But I'm going to have to answer one of these two. And then I read the third one and the fourth one and the fifth one. And they were all the same. I didn't know any of them. Now, I, I knew the material that we, that we had covered in class. I'd studied that and I, would, I had prepared for that. But he's asking about these wanderings and meanderings. Not unrelated to the material, but just not what I thought the teacher was going to expect of us on the test. You know, sometimes we don't understand what's expected of us. And we might be involved in this or that, and 
might get ready in this way or that, but we really don't understand what's, what's expected of us. And so when it comes time for the test, we fail. Now, I didn't fail. I did, I did okay. I thought, now just relax. Just uh, try to recall what was talked about. You remember the material. Just try to, I, I did okay on the test, but uh, I didn't do as well as I, I would like to have done. And you may have been in that kind of situation. It may be that you, you, you have a project at work that you work on and, and you prepare for and you spend a lot of time on and you give it to your boss and your boss says, now that, that's not really what I wanted. And, uh, and so you just, didn't, you just didn't prepare for what was expected. That happens in preaching sometimes. Somebody will say, well, Bob, I, I'd like to have a, hear a sermon on something like, like repentance. Okay, all right, I can do that. So I work on it, get my thoughts together, and preach the sermon and ask the, the person, is that what you had in mind? Well, no, not really. I, I was hoping you'd talk about this aspect of it. And so sometimes we don't understand what's expected of us, even when it comes to our relationship with God and our duties to God. Sometimes we might not understand what's expected, and so we focus on other things and we may find ourselves unprepared. So that brings us to the 50th Psalm. There, there are a few passages in the, in the Bible that summarize very well what God expects of us. Deuteronomy chapter 10, for example, in verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, walk in all His ways and love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and His good statutes, or statutes which I'm commanding you today for your good. And so that's a good summary, isn't it, of what the Lord expects of us. I thought about Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He's told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to love, to, 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 to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. And so again, there's, there's a good summary of what God expects of us. Now, the 50th Psalm touches on this as well. So we're going to talk about the 50th Psalm today and try to focus in on what God does not want from us, because that's discussed here, as well as what God does want from us. And uh, we hope as we leave today, maybe we'll have a good, good clear, focused understanding of, of our obligation before God. And so what, what God wants from us. The 50th Psalm begins by God establishing His worthiness of our devotion. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our loyalty. And so let's just read the first few verses here. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, has spoken. Some of the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has gone forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before Him. It's a very it is very tempestuous around Him. And so here's a, a vision of God, sort of a description of God. It says He is uh, shown forth out of Zion, and so He shines forth. Uh, from, from the city. Zion is the stronghold, and whether that's meant literally here or figuratively, Zion as in heaven, and God is shining forth, uh, maybe a subject for discussion, but, but God is establishing His greatness and His splendor and His majesty. So I got out this morning and began my way to the church building, and the sun, the sun was just coming up. 
This beautiful sunrise, maybe you saw it, or maybe you've seen situations like that where, where God is, in, in His creation, it's, He's shining forth. And so imagine this writer who's Asaph, and uh, perhaps many times he's seen the sun coming up over the city of Jerusalem, over the, the city of Jerusalem, and he just thinks, look at what God has created. This is magnificent. This is wonderful. God is shining forth, and that reminds us of His power of creation and why it is we worship Him. Why are we devoted to Him? He's the creator of all these things. He's our creator as well. And then in the next verse, he says that uh, fire devours before Him, and it is very tempestuous around Him. A tempestuous fire. Fire coming from the Lord suggests, many times in the Bible anyway, destruction and judgment. The 97th Psalm in verse 3, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. And so perhaps the idea here is that God is our creator, but he's also our judge. And he will come in fire against those and destroy those who are opposed to him, who are not loyal to him. Uh, there are a couple of other passages as well, maybe to look at the 11th Psalm and, and verse 6. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. The Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, the upright will behold his face. And so God's favor is upon the upright, but, but his fire will devour those and consume those who are not right with him. And so the psalmist Asaph is establishing from the very beginning, this is the God whom we are gathering together to worship. And so he's the mighty one. He's God. He's the Lord. He's our creator. And he is our judge as well. And so that's his identity. He's in a covenant with his people. Look at verse 5 where we have this calling together for worship. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself will judge. And so, in light of all this, God is our creator, God is our judge. He calls together his special people, his covenant people, those who are uh, in, uh, in fellowship with him. He is their God, they are his people. And he calls them together for worship. Every occasion of worship is sort of a renewal of the covenant, isn't it? The covenant that we have made with God. Every time we come together like we've come together today, we are re-establishing, confirming once again that He is our God and that we are His people. We do it in song, we do it in prayer, we do it in the Lord's Supper. And so here, gather my godly ones together, those who are making a covenant with me, those who in the process of their lives have made an agreement with me, entered into an, a, co a covenant with me, and continually renew that and refresh that and make that agreement all over again as the years go by. We have been called to worship today. We have gathered together today like, like these readers, these are first readers. We've gathered together today to worship God Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, the creator of the sun and the moon and the stars, and our creator as well. We've been called together to worship him. He is also our judge, and he will judge us in the last day. 
And uh, if that doesn't instill in our hearts and minds a sense of soberness and seriousness, we are going to stand before our Creator in judgment one day. Well, I don't know that I would be able to, 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 to create, that, create that kind of attitude in us myself. But not only will He judge us in the last day, He's judging us today, isn't He? He's evaluating us today. As we sit here in worship, God is seeing us. He sees our hearts. He sees what's in our minds. And He's making an evaluation about us and the sincerity of our worship and the effectiveness of our worship today. And so we think about Him as our judge in the last day, but God is involved in our lives on a day-by-day basis. And even today, as we've gathered together to worship, He's evaluating us and making a judgment about us. And so we gather together today to worship Him, to renew our covenant, to renew our promise with Him. And we need to engage in that and be involved in that in a very serious way. Well, then we go on to talk about what God does not want from us. Look at verse 7. Hear, O my people, still refers to them as my people, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God, (laughs) which implies I know everything about you. And I'm going to testify or bear witness against you. I'm not altogether happy with what I see in you. And so I'm going to tell you what it is you're doing that displeases me, and I hope you'll be able to correct it. Now, I don't reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine, and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? So here's the situation. God says, you know, I don't have a problem with your sacrifices. <laughs> your sacrifices which you are offering continually, that, that, that's, that's fine. Now that, that's not the problem. But that's not really what I want from you. I don't want merely your sacrifices. Now God had commanded Israel to offer certain sacrifices to him as part of their devotion to Him. There were daily sacrifices and weekly sacrifices. There were monthly and annual sacrifices. Their sacrifices involved bulls and goats and lambs and birds and meal and drink. All of those things were involved in their sacrifices. They were to be offered at the tabernacle initially, you remember, but eventually they were offered at the temple in Jerusalem where God had put His name. You remember the tabernacle, there's that outer barrier, and then you go within, and, and there's the altar of, uh, the bronze altar, the altar of burnt offering, then there's the laver, and then you have the tabernacle itself. You go in, there's the holy place, and the most holy place, and all the furnishings. The sacrifices were to follow a certain procedure. You can read about that in the book of Leviticus. There were whole burnt offerings which atoned for sin. There were sin offerings which also atoned for sin. There were guilt offerings which also atoned for sin. They required some restitution. There were meal offerings which secured goodwill, peace offerings which gave thanks to God. 
These were composed of thank offerings, votive offerings, and free will offerings. And so I say all of that just to say there's this elaborate system, intricate, detailed, complex system of sacrifice that was established by God for the Israelites nationally and individually. And so on occasion, the nation would offer sacrifice, but more often than that, individuals would be offering sacrifices. They had to do it in the right way and offer the right animal and so forth and so on. And maybe you've studied that before and know how complex that is. Apparently, there were some in Israel who had the idea that that's what God wanted. God wanted the sacrifices. And so they're bringing sacrifices, he says in this passage, continually. And they thought, well, as long as I'm offering the sacrifice, I must be okay with God. As long as I'm following the ritual, I must be acceptable to God. God must be pleased with that. After all, I'm, I'm offering the right animal, and I'm offering it at the right place, and I'm following the right procedure. And so it must be, if I'm doing all of that, God must be pleased. But God responds to this mistake. Now, He doesn't criticize them for their sacrifices, but animal sacrifices were not what God wanted from them. He says, if I wanted an animal, I wouldn't take it from you. You need it more than I do, you know. Well, I've got access to all the animals, all the animals in the world, all the beasts of the field, uh, cattle on a thousand, they're all mine. If I wanted an animal, I'd just get one. I wouldn't take it from you. I don't want your animals. What would I do with it anyway? Am I going to eat the flesh of a bull? (laughs) Am I going to drink its blood? What would I do with that? That's not what I want. Am I hungry? I need something to eat? Of course not. That's that's silly, isn't it? That's ridiculous. And so this idea that as long as I do the sacrifice, as long as I follow the procedure, as long as I go through with the ritual, I'm good with God, that's a mistake. Now, it's not that the sacrifices were unimportant. They they were important to God. But that's not essentially what God wanted. What did He want? Verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I'll rescue you, and you will honor me. And so here are three things that God wants. What, What does He want? I want your gratitude. (laughs) I want your sacrifice of thanksgiving. As I mentioned just a moment ago, Israel offered thanksgiving sacrifices to God. They were offered in gratitude for the blessings that God had given them at a very basic level. You know, we appreciate gratitude when it's shown. We resent it when it's not shown. You know, we've mentioned this before. We, We go into the a uh, fast food place, we, we, we put in our order, they bring us the food. No thank you, no gratitude shown, and we walk out of there, okay, and I, I'm not coming back, and I'm doing, not doing business here anymore. And so we, we sort of resent it when we do something for someone, and they show no gratitude and no thanks what forever, uh, at all, whatsoever. Now, if that's true of us, how much more is it true of our Father? In Luke 17, Jesus encounters 10 lepers. You remember the story. Jesus encounters 10 lepers. And He he heals them all. 
And Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back glorifying God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. He was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to gl glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. You can see, Je Jesus is a little resentful of the fact that he provided something for these people they could not provide for themselves, and they showed no gratitude whatsoever. A major error of the Gentiles was a lack of gratitude. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. Paul throughout his epistles emphasizes the need to be grateful or to be thankful. Think about Colossians chapter 3, for example. Colossians 3 and verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing with thankfulness. We ought always to be thankful. In fact, that's the message of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17 or verse 18. In everything give thanks. So let's just stop for a moment. Just stop for a moment. And let's just think about all the things that God has done for us. Things that we ought to be thankful for. So just think about that just for a moment. Think about the things that God has done in your life that you need to be thankful for. You know, gratitude indicates a recognition of dependency on someone else. You know, I take my car in to get it fixed, and they fix it. And when I, when I go to pick it up, it's fixed, it's ready to go. I say, thank you. Why? Well, I couldn't do that myself. And what you've done is you've put me in a position to be able to provide for myself and for my family. I know I'm paying him the money that uh, his work is worth, but also he's done something for me I couldn't do for myself. I couldn't do all those repairs. Don't have the know-how. Don't have the tools. And yet he's doing it. He's putting me in a position where I can go about my life and do the things I need to do. And so I'm grateful and I say thank you. And he might say thank you in return because your money is enabling me to put bread on my table for my family. So there's mutual gratitude and mutual thanksgiving. And when we say thank you to God, that's what we're saying. Thank you for putting me in a position that I need to be in that I couldn't put myself in. You've given me the things. You've granted to me. You've blessed me in ways that I would never be able to bless myself with. Spiritually, you've put me in a position I could never put myself in. Thank you. Thank you. I'm grateful. What does God want from us? He wants our gratitude. <laughs> he wants our thankfulness. We get caught up in life, get caught up in the world, and maybe we don't take the time to be thankful like we should. Here's a second thing God wants. He, he wants us to pay our vows. <clears throat> doesn't necessarily want the ritual as much, although sometimes the ritual is important. He, he wants us to pay our vows. Vow offerings or votive offerings 
were at times connected to thanksgiving offerings. And so you're expressing your gratitude, and at the same time, you're making a promise. You're taking a vow to God. And so the 61st Psalm, for example, and verse 8 says, well, verse 6 says, You will prolong the king's life. His years will be many generations. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, So I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may pay my vows day by day. You've blessed me. You've given me a long life. You've given me the opportunity to rule. And so you've done that for me. This is what I'll do for you. I'm going to pay my vows. I'm going to make certain promises to God. Should we be the kind of people that keep our promises or not? What do you think? Should we be the kind of people that keep our promises or, or not? Remember in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus scathingly rebukes the Pharisees for their sort of hierarchy of vows. Well, if you swear by this, it's not binding. But if you swear by this, it is binding. And, and Jesus just criticizes that strongly. Now, if you make a vow, you ought to keep it. If you make a promise, you should keep it. You should let your yes be yes and your no be no. James chapter 5 and verse 12. When we stand before God and a company of others, and we say to our loved one, I promise to keep myself to you and for you and to no one else. That's, that's a wedding vow. <laughs> We need to take that seriously. That's not just a formality. That's a vow that we take before those witnesses and before God. And we take that very seriously. Our vows are serious. We need to be the kind of people that keep them. Have you ever made a promise to God or made a vow to God that you haven't kept? Well, that's, that's a serious thing. In the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, there the writer says that it's better not to take the vow than to take the vow and not keep it. Verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And so we make God promises. We need to think, you know, think about that seriously before we make a promise. And then take it seriously and pay them, fulfill them, keep them. A couple of observations to make. A couple of ways that we make vows to God. When we become a Christian, we make a vow to God. That that's what's involved in becoming a Christian. We make a promise to God that we're going to be loyal to Him and that we're going to keep His covenant. We're going to keep His commandments. Uh, that reminds me of Exodus chapter 19 at, at Sinai when God tells the people, you know, I'm going to be your God and, and you be my people. But there's a condition placed upon that. He says in verse 5, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And then in verse 8, all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. That's what we do when we become a Christian. Now, you're going to be a Christian, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to be a Christian. That means you're going to follow Jesus. That's what a Christian is. That's what a disciple is. He follows Jesus. He learns what Jesus would have him to know, and he puts it into practice. That's, that's, that's what a Christian is. And so we make a promise. When we become a disciple, we make a promise to 
keep the teaching of Jesus. Jesus says, Luke 9, verse 23, If you come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say? If we confess Jesus as Lord, we really believe that, we'll submit to His authority, and we'll do what He says. So when we become a Christian, we make a vow, or take a vow. We make a promise. I'm going to follow in the steps of Jesus. I'm going to keep His commandments, His commandments and His authorized teachers, the apostles. But then there are commitments that we make voluntarily. I've known of some who have sort of entered into an agreement with God. I say some, maybe one. If I'm in this difficult situation, maybe I'm ill, if you will heal me, I will give myself totally to the preaching of the Word. And the person is healed. Well, he's made a promise to God. He's taken a vow, so to speak. And if that's your vow, now he's not required to do that, but, but he does do that. Well, if that's what you vow, you need to do it. And maybe we have vowed vows to God or made promises to God on a similar level. I'm gonna, I, I, what I'm going to do, I'm going to devote myself to daily Bible reading and prayer. Or if, if you made that promise to God, you need to keep it. I'm going to reach out to those who are in need better than I have in the past. Or if you've made that vow, you need to keep it. <laughs> Maybe other areas where we make promises to God, just, just individually. Well, don't make a promise to God, then not keep it. What does God want from us? Religious ritual? No, not not really. I want you to keep your promises. I want you to be the kind of people that will keep their promises. So just think about that. The promises that we have made when we became a Christian, maybe others that we've made with God along the way, take them seriously and determine to keep them to the best of our ability. The third thing that he says is, I want you to call on me in the day of distress or in the time of trouble. I want you to call on me. Well, I kind of thought, well, isn't that what people always do? (laughs) They they get in trouble and they call on God. Well, well, not necessarily. Remember in Exodus 32 at Mount Mount Sinai, Moses was delaying and Israel appealed to Aaron and said, you know, uh, we don't know what happened to Moses. Here we are out in the wilderness. Make us a God who will go before us. They didn't didn't turn to God in, in the day of their distress and confusion and and trouble. At times they would turn to Egypt or Assyria. They might turn to false gods or their weapons or their wealth. God says, I want you to turn to me. When you're in trouble, I want you to turn to me. What, What kind of troubles do we face in life? Well, we have relationship problems. We have family problems. We have money problems, health problems. We might have just personal problems and go through some very difficult circumstances emotionally or otherwise. And often we turn to sources other than God for help. Our own wisdom. Well, I got this difficult situation. I'm just going to have to figure this out on my own. And I'm just going to, you know. And so this is our day of trouble and distress, but, but we're trying to solve it through our own wisdom. Or, you know, I need to get some good advice from friends. And I'm not... I'm not really minimizing the importance or the effectiveness of any of that. Or, you know, I just need to work harder. 
And so I got these financial troubles. And so if I just work more and harder and longer, maybe I can get all of that worked out. Or counseling or, or doctors. Now, again, I, I'm not discounting any of those things. In fact, I believe that God often works through those things. Doctors and counselors and all of that kind of, uh, all, all those kind of things. So I'm not minimizing or discounting any of those. But we shouldn't depend on those to the neglect, to the neglect of God. You're in trouble. I want you to call on me. You see, I, I'm the one that cares for you the most. <laughs> and, and I'm going to do what's best for you. And so I want you to trust me. And I want you to turn to me. And I want you to call on me. In the 22nd Psalm there, uh, David is in trouble. He's, in, he's having all kinds of uh, difficulties with his enemies. And, and he, he, he calls on God. And then verse 25, at the end of verse 24, God hears him. And verse 25, you, you come, uh, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. So there's that idea of paying my vows and as a result of David calling on God and God responding. And so when we're in trouble, when we're having a hard time, when we're facing difficulties, God says, I want you to call on me. It's kind of like a dad, isn't it? <laughs> a dad telling his son or his daughter, now, now if you're ever in trouble, you, you come see me and I'll take care of it. And so that's why you trust in me. I'll provide for you. Now, we shouldn't wait until we are in trouble to call on God. <laughs> but God is saying to his people, I'll be there, call on me, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. Now, the last section of the psalm we're not going to say too much about. This section is addressed to those who are making sacrifices, but they're, just, they're disobedient, they're hypocrites. To the wicked, God says, what right do you have what right have you to tell of my statutes and to make my covenant in your mouth? You know, you're just going through the motions. You know, what right do you have to say these things when you don't live according to them? You hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you, you have done, and I kept silent, and you thought I was like you. They've created God in their image. Now, I'm going to reprove you and state the case in order before you. Now, now consider this. Kind of an emphatic statement. Now, you think about this. You who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces, and there will be no one to deliver. <laughs> and so God's judgment is on those who are simply going through the motions who are mouthing the words, who are singing the songs without any thought, who don't focus on the prayers. During the Lord's Supper, their minds want. You're going through the motions, and yet God says, no, that, that's not, that's not going to work. If I tear you in pieces, if I come against you in judgment, no one will be able to deliver you. And then the final verse, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. There may be some in worship today 
who fit this description. Oh, they're mouthing the words. They're going through the motions. You need to understand this. God is not mocked. Okay? God is not mocked. We're going to reap what we sow. Do you want to know the way that you should take in life? Do these two things. Be grateful to God and set your way in order. That is, walk in His way. And God will show you the way. God, God will lead you. You be thankful, you be grateful, and set your way in order. Again, we've gathered together here to worship, to worship our Creator, to worship our Judge. What does He want from us? Does He want us to go, just go through the rituals of worship, the ceremony of worship? No. You know, sometimes the rituals are important. <laughs> Ceremony's important. But He really wants us, doesn't He? He want, doesn't want that. He wants us. He wants our gratitude. He wants us to keep our promises. He wants us to call on Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together and to, to worship you today. We pray that our worship has been acceptable to you. We pray, Father, that we've entered into it sincerely in spirit and in truth. Help us, Father, to see clearly what you want from us. Help us not to be confused about that or distracted or help us to see clearly what you do not want and avoid that. Help us, Father, to see what you want from us. And give us a heart, Father. Help us develop that determination to provide what you want, to, to be grateful to you for all that you've done. Help us to keep the promises that you've made, that we've made to you, that we would uh, take them seriously and determine to fulfill them. And help us, Father, to understand that you care for us and to turn to you and call out to you when we're troubled and we're distressed. We're so thankful, Father, that you care for us, that you love us, that you're active in our lives, and that you'll lead us along the way. We're thankful for your Son, Jesus, who showed us that way by his life and help us to follow in his steps. And it's his, in his name that we pray. Amen.